You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. This message is from our series called Apocalypse Now, Interpreting Biblical Prophecy, presented by Steve Coleman, elder and member of the New Hope Chapel teaching team. Morning. Good to see you all. A holiday weekend. And we are talking about Apocalypse Now, uh, which is all... One of our, uh, the seeds of, of doing this was thinking in terms of the, the various things that we're hearing in our culture about 2012. A lot of speculation, there's a lot of science, bad science, and a lot of uh, hype and expressions of concern. Uh, and so the question came to us, well, Maybe we should talk about what the Bible teaches about prophecy, what it says, what it doesn't say. And uh, so we've been trying to do that. We pick three weeks. The Bible's a big book, and three weeks is tough. Um, Last week, we tried to take a look at at the Old Testament. And um, this week, we're going to be looking at the New Testament, the epistles, uh, not counting Revelation, and um, the Gospels particularly Jesus' conversation with a few of his disciples on the Mount of Olives. It's called the Olivet Discourse, in which he answers a question. We'll be getting into that in a minute. Next week, we'll finish up the series by talking about Revelation. So we can't hope to talk about every aspect of prophecy in this time. Um, we, We have noted a few principles as you're looking at prophecy, a few things that really make it challenging or interesting, depends on how you look at it. Uh, If you're a fan of crossword um, jigsaw puzzles, it's sort of like there was a box of jigsaw puzzle pieces scattered on a table for you, but you don't have the whole picture to guide you, and you're pretty sure, matter of fact, it's a fact, that you don't have all the pieces. So trying to sort of sort this out and put things together is a real challenge. Uh, If you follow the faithful rules, though, and start with the edge pieces, put those together, at least you've got a framework within which you know how uh, things should fit. And that helps guide some of these decisions. The same is true for prophecy. Now, last week, uh, we talked about this chart. I had developed it. Let me just briefly break it down again for you in summary. Uh, The gray boxes at the bottom uh, talk about the scope of the Bible. The Bible begins with the creation of heavens and earth, and we read way over in Revelation 21 that there's a new heaven and new earth created. So that's, those are the bookends for the Bible and what the Bible talks about. You don't get but three chapters into the Bible before you run into what uh, is kind of the primary storyline. And that is God rescuing his people, because in Genesis 3, we have the introduction of sin into the world. And from that point on, God's on a rescue mission for humankind, uh, which has a climax at the cross when Jesus died 2,000 years ago. This line's not to scale, obviously. And, And then our time here, we're just to the right of the cross, and... um, There will be an end time that's discussed about uh, in Revelation and in many other passages. We looked at a couple in the Old Testament last week where there will be some finality, but that's what 
some of the prophecy deals with. Some of it's already been uh, fulfilled, and we can see that in the dotted red line there. In Genesis 12, God selects Abraham. This is the beginning of that great storyline where God's going after and making major steps to, uh, to rescue humankind from sin. And he picks Abraham, chooses Abraham, and he becomes the father of the Jewish nation. There are several prophecies, promises that he gives Abraham. And those promises, uh, some of them aim all the way to the end of what the Bible talks about in Revelation. There are later in the book of Deuteronomy, there are promises to the people, primarily about the land. Uh, further along in David's reign, in 2 Samuel, there's prophecies to him. All three of them have significant eternal characteristics. In other words, they don't get fulfilled until the very end of the age. Uh, other, we looked at a passage in Daniel. We looked at verses in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And there are a lot of places, a lot of prophecies, individual verses or sections that, that we could list here, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, sort of representative of, of other prophecies that feed right into this primary line that exists. And that's one of our boundary lines as well. On the bottom, the Mosaic Law, it's one of those uh, non-eternal things. It wasn't meant to last from end to end. It wasn't meant to be the only way, the final way, the complete way that God deals with his people. The law is a shadow of the things to come. And we read that the law came to an end with Christ's death on the cross. Um, because at that time, what God brought in is a period of time where he dealt with people. And this was, we talked about last week in Jeremiah 31, in partial fulfillment of Jeremiah talking about God saying, no longer will I, uh, will I rule my people with the written code, with the written law. At that time, I will write my law on their hearts, and they will know me. And they, they won't have to ask their neighbor or their friend, who is the Lord, because they'll know me. He's talking about Israel and the ultimate restoration here at the end. But that begins here with the cross. And, uh, and the transformation in, in, uh, in us who believe in the Lord Jesus as uh, the beginning of the uh, fulfillment of that prophecy. Okay, well, looking at this summary in a puzzle format, using our metaphor, we've got the creation of the heavens and the earth on the left, new heavens and new earth on the right, those promises, prophecies of Israel across the top, the Mosaic Law, and the shift to this new covenant along the bottom. And we talked last week about some, uh, some verses, some Old Testament prophecies. On page two of your handout is a list of prophecies from the Old Testament, just to sort of close that out about one of the subjects of prophecy, and that's the day of the Lord. We have some verses from Isaiah. We have verses from Joel, Zephaniah, and Zechariah. And I'll leave you to read those. But they end up being puzzle pieces that build, that you can gather across Scripture that talk about this day of the Lord and build that section of the puzzle. 
Uh, also, in some of those prophecies, it's referencing some of the things that we read about and will read about in the Olivet Discourse about some of the, the trouble the earth goes through. And as we look at various parts of prophecy in the Old Testament, New Testament, we'll see other pieces and sections that come together. And the third page of your handout are three of the uh, more significant passages in, Paul, in the letters of the New Testament that are prophetic. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians about the uh, coming of Christ for his people. So that's represented up here. And you can find a set of prophecies in other places of Scripture that sort of you can fit in and build that section. Uh, 2 Thessalonians, Paul writes about the man of lawlessness, who corresponds very nicely, if you do some looking around, at a man that Daniel calls the man of sin, and the book of Revelation calls the Antichrist. Very much the same person. And so we have, have that here. Uh, and then the third passage there is Peter. Is it Second Peter? Yeah. Uh, and talking about, again, the day of the Lord. And he gives some, uh, some discussion about that as well. So as, as you pull pieces of bits of prophecy, you'll find they can fit into some of these different categories. Still very difficult, in particular, to put things together in a whole picture or in some chronological time frame. Because that's another challenge in Scripture. And we see that illustrated very well in the Old Testament. There's our prophet over there on the right. Old Testament prophets would write. And sometimes in the same chapter, and even the same verse, they'll have things that God has them writing about an event that happens. In this example, I think we were talking about Daniel when we used this last week. But the first advent of Christ. When Christ first came and was born in the manger, lived his life... Uh, ministered and uh, died on the cross for us. Uh, Daniel also talks with, without seeming to uh, suggest that there's a time difference about things like the abomination of desolation, which is a, um, uh, a, a takeover by um, uh, the forces of Satan of the temple and what, they, what the Antichrist sets up there uh, in particular. And then also the second advent, Christ coming in power and glory. Well, these things are separated by time periods. In the case of that first gap, the whole church age, 2,000 years and counting. So um, that's a problem in looking at Old Testament prophecy. So because we can see that now, since we are living uh, beyond this first mountain peak in this valley here, we can... Look this direction and see a prophecy that's come tr been fulfilled. And look this direction and see prophecies that have not yet occurred. And recognize they go with prophecies about the end time. Uh, we can know that as we're looking at prophecies about the end time, there are valleys here and gaps that we might not know about. And timing is very difficult to see with prophecies. And we talked about uh, some principles last week. Uh, just the final little summary, and that is, we talked about, in, 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 by looking at these edge pieces, we see God has a plan, God has a framework, and it's set. Uh, there's no, there, there, things aren't being made up as we go along. 
There's an end to this thing. And the end is known, and the things that are going to happen are known. We may not have every detail in the prophecy we have, but everything is set and on track. We also said that within that framework, it appears that the best way to approach prophecy is if you're trying to look at and interpret any piece of literature or any other part of the Bible, that you take a look and, and say, what does it say? And try to interpret it literally. Interpret it within the context that it sits. And with you know, an understanding of normal metaphors that are used for things. Uh, and not jump to some spiritual interpretation. Because you sort of lose your moorings when you do that. And you, you get adrift because now you have no principles that guide you in trying to understand prophecy. Okay, so um, what happens here? I want to spend uh, the next segment of time, the rest of our time, looking at the Olivet Discourse because uh, this is an occasion where Christ talked to his disciples and that is on the fourth sheet. Uh, There's kind of a summary there of some of the principal ideas and sentences, statements that are made in the Olivet Discourse. Uh, The Olivet Discourse appears in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, And by those check marks in the right-hand columns, you can see that there's a great deal of overlap. Uh, In other words, the Olivet Discourse uh, appears uh, almost in full version uh, in all three. So the occasion is uh, Jesus and his disciples were leaving the Temple Mount and headed toward the, the Mount of Olives. And the disciples, at least some of them, were remarking about kind of the amazing grandeur of uh, Herod's temple. Uh, Huge stones that are fit together so perfectly, they need no mortar. You know, there's no gap there to be seen. Uh, It's resplendent with gold and bronze and silver. Uh, You can see the little people walking around. So the scale of this thing is huge. And the disciples... Remark about that. And Christ says, you know, one stone is not going to be left on top of another. In other words, this temple is going to be destroyed. And by the time they get to the Mount of Olives, a few of the disciples get very concerned. And they come to Jesus and they ask, well, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? You know, according to classical Jewish belief, they thought that... This temple was going to last until the New Age. In other words, what they're saying is all those prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about this final glorious kingdom uh, in which Christ will rule physically and literally in day, over Israel, in other words, on David's throne. And that was Jewish understanding. They called this temple the footstool of God. Because this temple, by being a part of meeting that Mosaic law and being the center of worship on the earth for the worship of Jehovah this way, they viewed this as kind of the connection between God and humankind. And so they viewed this as God's footstool uh, only to be destroyed when God came uh, in Uh, fully to rule. 
And the first thing Christ says to them in all four uh, accounts is he says, watch out that no one deceives you. Not a direct answer to the question, but watch out that no one deceives you. Doesn't really answer that question. Well, you know, I remember when my children were in the high school age, and inevitably one or the other would come to me and say, can I borrow the car? And there was usually sort of two responses I'd give in order. The first one is, if I do give you the keys, you have to drive carefully. And then the second one was, okay, where do you want to go? Who's going with you? When's it coming back? Are you going to put gas in the tank? All those critical questions that I'm going to use, use to decide whether I'm going to loan this car to this child. Of course, when, when that negotiation was done, I would be reiterating, now you're going to drive carefully, and so on and so on. Well, why did I give that information twice? Well, the first time I said it, I wasn't really imparting information. I was trying to provide emphasis to them on what bottom line is the most critical thing to keep in mind. And that's what Jesus is doing here. They ask a question. When will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus says, watch out that no one deceives you. And it's our first principle for this week of prophecy. So you find that at the bottom of the fourth sheet as a fill-in. The first principle. Watch out that no one deceives you. Just like those children, Christ wanted to place enormous emphasis on this. And why? Why so? Because it's easy to be deceived. And if we fail and we are deceived, then bad things happen. It has an effect on our Christian life. It has an effect on uh, what happens for God's kingdom. It has an effect on who we are and who we become and our behavior. So, what, so in looking at uh, uh, this Olivet Discourse, and you can look down at some of the, the phrases. We don't really have time to read the whole discourse. I'm sorry, I missed, missed what it was I wanted to, wanted to show, but that's okay. Uh, we're going to continue on. They, what, this, what Christ is doing is giving some evidences within the, the uh, discourse of deception and what we have to watch out. That's why the emphasis, because deception is such a prevalent thing. And he says, let no man deceive you, and he says right there at the beginning... <coughs> of the Olivet Discourse, uh, there will be, many will come claiming to be Christ, there will be many false prophets, it says a little later on the Olivet Discourse, that false prophets will rise and will try to deceive, and they will deceive, uh, be, that deception will be so strong, it might, even, it, it might deceive those who are Christ's, uh, if that be possible.
So in following a false Christ or a false prophet, what happens to us is that we're not, we're getting involved in the things that they're talking about. We're going to talk a little bit more about this later, but uh, using the example of sort of the concerns about end times, feeling like, oh, we are now in the end times. Man, the next thing to happen is, is this, this whole, um, the way that the earth is operating, we're, we're starting in this, in this period where everything's going to fall apart, where where uh, earthquakes and famines are going to take over and the, and the great tribulation is going to start. And it can get us distracted. It can keep us from being focused on the things that God wants us to be focused on. As a small example, we had Dennis Karp here uh, last summer. And I love Mr. Karp. I, 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 a lot of good stuff that he said there. He made one statement, though, and maybe I misheard him, but it caught my attention. And he said, if not before, now he's talking in the summer of 2011, if not before, then definitely by October, Israel's going to be at war in that Palestine area. I don't know if I heard correctly or not, but I heard that. And he turned me into a little bit of a news junkie from... August to October, every other day I'm clicking on news, looking, uh, reading, and so on. And um, I could well have gotten so focused there that I didn't do other things that I should have been doing. Just as an illustration, I love Dennis Carr. He's doing a great work for the Lord and for advancing his kingdom uh, in Israel. You know, a second way is we allow ourselves to become alarmed or fearful. I hear that in some of my friends that are Christians. They get kind of worked up. Do you know what's going to happen if this happens politically? Or do you know what's going to happen if this law doesn't get overturned? We've got to make this happen, or else the world's going to be sliding down in the wrong direction. We're never told in the New Testament to be alarmed or to be afraid. We're told we're given not the spirit of fear, but instead the the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. And God intends for us, every post-resurrection appearance of Christ, he said, peace be with you. Paul used that as an introduction and a conclusion to many of his letters, talking about peace. And uh, in the Olivet Discourse, Christ makes a strong point of saying, you're not going to miss it when I come. He says, don't go out when somebody says, oh, the Christ is over there. Don't go into the inner rooms if somebody says, oh, Christ is there. He says, um, and he uses, I do know where this one is. Uh, It's right about in the middle of the list. It says, you will not miss my coming. And he says, as lightning is visible... From one horizon to another, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. Then he uses an odd illustration. He says, as vultures gathering show where a carcass is, so will be my coming. Probably the most creative metaphor used in Scripture. But the point is, you see over there, 
of a number of vultures circling, and you say, oh, that's easy to see. There's something on the ground they're interested in, likely a carcass. And Christ is saying that. You don't need to worry you're going to miss me. You don't need to be concerned about uh, exactly what's going to happen. You will not miss it when I come. It cannot be missed. Don't worry. Don't be alarmed at the things that happen. They must happen because the end must come. But don't be alarmed. The problem is if we get alarmed, it gets us, first of all, it disturbs our heart, our soul. It uh, can get us focused on things that aren't really what the Lord wants us doing. It can make us, um, just get us going the wrong direction. And we can, we can, we can, uh, we can be concerned about that. Because Christ says, you're not going to know when I come. And I think that's why he stresses don't be alarmed so much. Because not knowing can be concerning to us. I think the flip side danger as well that, uh, that Christ wants us to be aware of is not to fall into complacency. Second principle that shows up here is that Christ's return is imminent. Christ doesn't give the disciples any suggestion that his return is going to be delayed by 2,000 years. He doesn't give them the idea he's coming you know, a year after he leaves either. He doesn't talk in terms of time. In fact, he says nobody knows the time. The implication clearly is it could be next year. could be for us. It could be tomorrow. It could be this afternoon. It could be a thousand years from now. And we don't know. Uh, Christ's return is imminent. It may occur at any time. But what a wonderful thing when Christ returns because he's coming back to get us, all of us adults who have believed in the Lord Jesus and all of you children who have believed in the Lord Jesus, that's a promise you can count on. He is coming back for you and he's coming back for me. Well, what are the evidences of complacency that, we, that, that Christ is trying to communicate here in the Olivet Discourse? What are the things he's concerned about? What's the message to us from all this? First of all, it's an evidence of complacency if we are not doing the Lord's business. You know, in the parable of the sower, and Jesus, uh, Julie spoke on this a couple of weeks ago, You had different kinds of soil. And one of the soils, the weeds, grew up and blocked the the good plant. So it couldn't uh, get the sun, uh, get the rain, get what it needed, and it, it died. And he interpreted that as the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and the person becomes unfruitful. That's how Christ interpreted it. You know, one of the ways that we can be kept from doing what God wants us to do is that we get pulled aside and distracted by good things like riches, like any, any, any good thing. 
can be a choker on us if we're not uh, aware of the importance of not being complacent, if we're aware, if we're looking for the Lord's coming. There's a, there's a focus that God wants us to have so that we stay true to what we're, to be, what we're doing. We need to be asking God about those things. But there is a certain attitude and a certain focus. Uh, in the 1980s and 90s in particular, there were a number of students and former students at MIT and Harvard Business, Business School and a couple of other schools up in Massachusetts that they got together and formed sort of small teams. And with their good powers of memorization, they were able to memorize some charts and graphs and probabilities, and they formed blackjack teams. And what they would do is go into the casinos, and without giving away that's what they were doing, they'd be counting what they call counting the cards. In blackjack, apparently, there's, if you uh, keep track of an index number based on what cards have been played, that gives you an edge over the house. So instead of the casino having the edge over you, so you will over time lose money, they had an edge over the house, so over time they would gain money. And counting cards, casinos don't like it, and they make it, they make a rule that says you can't count cards here. So whenever they spot that, they throw people out of casinos. But for a student to join this, they had to go through a lot of training, a lot of practice. They had to be tested by the current team members. And one of the tests, they go to what uh, appears to them to be a small gambling, illegal gambling operation in a back room. And uh, they make sure, the testers make sure it's set up with a lot of noise, a lot of things happening. They get jostled. Drinks get spilled on them, that kind of thing. while they're trying to do well on this test of counting cards while play is happening. And at one point, they even throw a sack over the guy's head, drag him out to a room, you know, threaten his life, uh, and try to um, uh, get him worried about that. But then at the last minute, they whip this hood off his head, and they say, what was the count? And if he could keep the right count number in his head through all of that, uh, then they were approved to be part of this team that goes in uh, to these casinos and do that. Well, they were looking for people that had this laser-like focus, the ability to stay on task regardless of the distractions. To read the newspaper about things that people think are uh, pointing us uh, that we're in the last days of the earth is challenging enough, but to read from some Christian writers or folks that are just um, writing in the more informal avenues on the web and so on, and, and have them say, oh, look, this is the end, here we are, can be a big distraction. If what God has you doing is working at and planning outreach programs for the church, it can pull you off task. So that's, that's one of the dangers here of complacency, is, is saying, uh, 
we, we don't need to be pursuing those programs and things because the Lord's coming anyway. We don't need to worry. The other side to that, the other evidence of complacency is we're not alert and praying. Jesus tells them in the Olivet Discourse to be alert, to, he uses the word watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day the Lord will come. And that's where he likens it to uh, the illustration of the, the thief in the night. The Lord's coming like a thief in the night. We don't know when he's come. If somebody knew when a thief was coming, they wouldn't. They would be sitting up with a baseball bat ready to, to stop them from robbing their house. But we don't know. So we have to be alert at all times. You know, Timothy, Paul writes in the book of Timothy that a crown of righteousness is waiting for those who long for his appearing. And Peter also writes that the end of all things is near, therefore... Be alert and a sober mind so that you may pray. So you may pray. That seems odd. Can't we pray any time? Aren't we supposed to be praying without ceasing? Can't we bring everything to the Lord in prayer? What's, what's the challenge of being able to pray? Well, we raise four children. I'm just telling you because that means there's a number of people to choose from here. And one of the things we tried to do as they were growing up was sort of give them the notion of praying and praying out loud and um, even some sense of sort of leadership and leading people in prayer. So when they got sort of old enough uh, and in those younger elementary school years, we would take turns different nights and have a child pray before we ate dinner. And um, one of our children the prayer often went something like this. Thank you for my nice house. Thank you for my family. Help me have a good day today. Amen. And, and, and that was, you remember those prayers. Yeah. And, and that tended to be the sum total of the prayer. I don't think that's what Peter's talking about when he says, be sober-minded and alert so you can pray. He means prayer that's grappling with the serious issues. And spiritually for us, if we're not alert, if we're not aware as believers on what's going on, what's happening in this world, that this world is really not end-all and be-all. This world is vanishing eventually. And what matters is God's kingdom, Christ's hold on our life. Then we can pray. Then we know what to pray. And uh, James writes, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. There's praying and there's praying. Now, I'd still do that uh, prayer system with our children as they grew up. It's a good way to train that sort of thing. It's just interesting to watch that transition. And each of our kids went through it as they got a little older, that they would get the point that this wasn't about some canned saying. It wasn't about 
okay, what, have you, what good things have you done for me? What more good things can you do for me? But they would, they would learn and understand. You know, a friend of mine, uh, back three decades ago, when, you know, in sort of the bumper sticker wars, you know, somebody would come out with a great saying and other groups would sort of key off that saying. There was a bumper sticker that said, life's short, pray, play hard. And some Christian organization, uh, uh, you know, piggybacked off that. And my friend had this T-shirt that said, life's short, pray hard. And uh, it, it reminds me of the intensity that Christ was asking for, which is the opposite of being complacent, but the intensity when, when he came back and found the disciples asleep when he was praying in the garden, he said, couldn't you watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. So whether it's near or not, Christ's return is imminent. And we need to be, um, first of all, not deceived. And second of all, uh, we ought to make sure that, uh, that we have, that, that we stay focused on the realities and recognize the Lord's coming is imminent. And we've got to examine ourselves and go before the Lord about that. You know, I had a plumber come to my house uh, to help us with some of our plumbing fixtures and leaks and that sort of thing. I hate water. Uh, you know, it just it never can stop all the leaks. So I have to call in a plumber instead of trying to do it myself sometimes. But he, he came and replaced, uh, you know, the knobs and so on. But in this package also came a shower head. Now, our shower head works fine, but he was, he was saying, you know, uh, there's a flow restrictor in these shower heads. And see that down there? You can just take that out and, and so on, and you can, you can get better shower water. So you go on the internet and you find uh, all kinds of instructions. There's either, there's either something to be replaced you know, or something to be removed, or even drill a larger hole if needed, right there. And you can get that flow restrictor out of the way. I think what Christ is telling his disciples, they're saying, what are the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? And he's saying, don't let anybody deceive you. You're not going to miss it. My coming's imminent. He doesn't really answer the question exactly the way that they wanted him to, but the answer he gave was one where he could impress these points and say, you need to not let anything restrict the flow between you and me. We've got to have a deeper and richer connection with the Lord. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org 
or check us out on Facebook slash New Hope Chapel MD. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening, and God bless.